All right, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. I am black on the air. Black on the air. So, um, really, really entertaining guest today, Ms. Nell Scovell, an old friend of mine, actually, from uh, the writing days. Very funny. She has a book out, Just the Funny Parts. It's about her days in showbiz, being a, a woman in the comedy business, which wasn't easy in, her, in those days and these days. It's gotten better, and she talks about it. She's really funny, and the way she talks about it is awesome. So she's going to be on, and I think you'll enjoy that. Um, what a week it's been, man, with the whole Roseanne and Sam B thing going on. You got Ape and the C word and all this stuff. It was a crazy week of words. I don't know if you guys saw Bill Clinton. He was uh, doing an interview with NBC News. And, like, I don't know what he has going on. I don't know if he's selling a book or whatever. Uh, there's something going on. But um, and I say that because he made a distraction out of his interview where they asked him about Monica Lewinsky and if he would apologize. And it's so funny because Clinton has this thing where he gets mad and he turns red. It's hilarious. And uh, you could just see him starting to get mad. And guys, it's 20 years later, and he's he does that whole turn the thing around where he says, you don't know the facts. And he's doing all this stuff, and he gets mad. And he just handles it so wrong, you know, as we're in the era of the Me Too. And it really disheartened me. I don't understand why Bill Clinton can't simply say, you know what? What I did back then was just wrong, you know. I mean, I— I'll apologize again, you know, and you're right. I probably should have apologized to Monica Lewinsky directly, but I did it like this, but I probably should have, you know, and I'm sorry. Like, why is that so hard to say? I don't understand that. He got so defensive in a way that was just really, really disheartening. And what's going to happen, I'm sure, is that, you know, all the Trump people are going to try to use that as a distraction so we won't think about the pussy grabber in chief, you know, and all the stuff that Trump is doing, which is so horrible. And I only bring it up as a, just as a way to say, it, it's so disappointing in this day and age that you can't be self-aware enough, especially when the Me Too movement and all the things that have happened, you know, to, to answer this question directly. And honestly, I was having an, a discussion with my friend about the whole Al Franken thing about grabbing people's butts and that type of thing. And, and I was telling her, I said, look, Al Franken, he was problematic in not having a direct, honest human answer to that whole thing. It was always convoluted words and everything. And and I'm a fan of Al Franken and what he was doing in his politics and everything. And he was on my show. It was a fun podcast. But it was so disappointing because if you haven't done the thing, speak directly and honestly and with conviction, you know. Don't fucking dance around. And— Bill Clinton, man, you're the you're still one of the faces of the Democratic Party, man. Come on, your wife just ran for president. You got to do better than that. This ain't this ain't about you and what happened 20 years ago. It's where we are right now. You got to step in some new shoes and and uh, you got you're sitting in a different place right now. That's it's very disappointing. But as I say that, I do not want us to get distracted about that and forget about, as I said, the pussy grabber in chief. Uh, the Mango Mussolini, who um, has done the latest thing where um, the Philadelphia Eagles, who won the Super Bowl this past year, you know, every year you have a um, the team uh, that wins, like, NBA championship, NFL championship, blah, 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 I think NHL. They all get invited to the, to the White House. I don't know when this started. 
I think Nixon invited the astronauts. Maybe that started it. I have no idea. But it's like a tradition thing, you know. And uh, <laughs> since Trump's been there, people just don't want to go. It's one of the funniest things. I get so much enjoyment when I when I see players say they don't want to go to the Trump White House. It's just really funny. And, guys, there's like 53 players on a football team. <laughs> and I think... I think at least 45 said they didn't want to go. I mean, how awesome is that? So Trump, being the asshole that he is, disinvites them um, as, you know, as if, you know, as if uh, we're going to be tricked by that. You know, well, now they're not invited, you know. But here's the thing that is fucked up about it, okay? He not only disinvites them. I don't have the words right here, but I'll summarize for you. But in his disinvitation, he makes it about the whole uh, protest that was going on last year with the NFL players kneeling, okay? And the black NFL players who were kneeling because of Colin Kaepernick who was kneeling to protest the way that blacks have been treated in America vis-a-vis police brutality in particular, right? That was his personal protest that became a league-wide protest. Some of it was a protest against Trump when he called players sons of bitches and he decided to weigh in on it. That was on him. So a lot of players were protesting because of him. Howsomever, one of my grandmother's favorite words, howsomever, you guys. The Eagles never knelt to protest the national anthem. They never did that. Some of the Eagles players knelt in prayer before the game and in prayer after the game which happens in football a lot. Football is one of the churchiest sports, I think, of all the of all the sports. <laughs> when I say churchiest, they have the most players who rely on Jesus to give them that edge in the game, you know. Thanks, Jesus, you really helped us out. Thanks for keeping safe, Jesus. Because Jesus really likes football. What would Jesus do? He would play football. That's what he would do. But it's a very churchy sport in terms of that. And it has been. And football is a very conservative sport in many ways, you know. And a lot of it is... Uh, just a, a lot of the individual, it's ironic because a lot of the conservative ethos is about the individual. But ironically, there's a lot of socialist ethos in football. You know, it's all for the common good. Everybody pitches in. But, um, you know, it's very conservative in some of the aspects of the players being very religiously devout and that sort of thing. And they're showing of it and sharing of it is what I mean. I think like there's Bible study classes and things like that that a lot of players get involved in. But anyhow, that's always been in football. It's been in football a long time. It's part of the culture. I ain't mad at that. It is what it is. Um, so when Fox, which is state news, when they reported um, this whole disinvitation, this disingenuous disinvitation, uh, much in the way I disrespectfully disagree with, with the president, um, they actually showed pictures of the, of the Eagles players kneeling in prayer and trying to make it seem like that was them kneeling in protest. That's fucked up, you guys. That is really fucked up. Because... Um, you know, there's so much about that that is fucked up. It's it's one of the insidious ways to me uh, how racism works a lot. It's just using the simplest of images to foment just this unsettledness and this rage and this just a bias towards people just based on something that you don't like them doing. And it's not true. It's so fucking not true, you know. And um, Fox News, for me, they just love to provide the fuel for the arrogance of the uninformed, you know. It just provides that fuel. And Trump is the king of the arrogant uninformed. Uh, in fact, his ignorance has like this pridefulness. 
His ignorance has like a gleefulness, which is amazing to me. He takes pride and glee in his ignorance. But for Fox to feel that with pictures like this, and I think they they uh, issued some, not even a retraction, but a correction somewhere. I have no idea. But the fact that that was on the news and it's being shown like that is just wrong. And uh, and it, it's just so fucked up in how all of this works because it was Trump that drew that false association between the players somehow being non-patriotic because they were kneeling. And I've talked about this before, and I've broken it down and deconstructed in many ways. And as you know, I'm the one saying that I don't even think they should have this protest anymore because I don't even know what it means. But every time Trump gets in the middle of it, I say, well, fuck you, motherfucker. They should all kneel then, you know, because he shouldn't be in the middle of it. It's just wrong, you know. And also, can we stop associating football with patriotism? Can we just stop doing that? What is the point of doing this anymore? If you go to a rap concert, they don't play the national anthem before the rap concert. There's no other entertainment that requires this show of nationalism or militarism. I don't understand it. We don't need it anymore. Let's let's just separate that shit, and then it's not an issue. I get it for the Olympics, you know, when you're playing against other countries. Play the national anthem. It's a, it's a you know, display of national pride for this. But why do we even have it in sports, guys? What is it about sporting events? I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. I don't believe it's a requirement. And I think the national anthem and standing up for it and respecting it and everything is a good thing. I enjoy it when the national – I'm one of those people that enjoys standing up when the national anthem plays. But I don't think it has to be played for these events. Maybe we can just save it for, like, the championship games and that sort of thing if you want to keep it. But if it's so divisive and it's calling all this divisiveness, why don't we get rid of it? Because believe me, they're not going to get rid of football because that's making way too much money for everybody, you know. Um, But the owner's ruling around that, I never covered this, was I believe was cowardly, saying that if the players want to, whatever, protest this, then they should go uh, into the locker room, but they can't do it on the field, which is ridiculous. And I do feel also, on a side note, that kneeling – for the national anthem, I don't believe is a sign of disrespect. I think if you're going to choose kneeling as a protest during the national anthem, you've chosen one of the more respectful stances you can take <laughs> during the national anthem. I'm Catholic, you guys. We kneel at the points in the mass that are the most respectful parts of the mass. You know, the part where Jesus magically turns the wafer into his own body. It's where we kneel. I say magically, I'm Catholic, I can say, I can get away with that. But there are other parts of the Mass where we kneel out of respect. Kneeling is the most respectful act you can do during Mass. Standing is not. Standing is the least respectful, well, maybe sitting, actually going to sleep. Going to sleep is the most disrespectful thing you can do. I've seen priests go to sleep, believe me, while I was serving Mass. Um, uh, Yes, I was an altar boy. But, uh, Kneeling is the most respectful thing you can do. So this bullshit about how disrespectful it is, go fuck yourself. Kneeling is not disrespectful. It's the most respectful way that someone could protest the flag. Burning the flag is the most disrespectful way that you can protest the flag. Let's be let's be honest about this, all right? Um, but not kneeling. So go fuck yourself about that. And then Trump, I believe, he tries to show that he's not racist <laughs> against black players by pardoning a black athlete who's been dead for like 70 years, Jack Johnson. I know you guys, some of you may or may not know this story. Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight champ uh, like 100 years ago at this point. And uh, that's where the term Great White Hope came 
came about because they were searching for a white champion who could beat him. And Jack Johnson was, man, you talk about keeping 100 in his day. I mean, he was, he married a white woman and he did not give a fuck. He did not give a fuck back in those days. And uh, he was arrested on what was called the Mann Act, the unlawful transfer of a minor for Ill, for illicit purposes. I don't believe his wife was a minor, but she was white. And that was major. <laughs> that was not minor. <laughs> and so so Trump, I think there some people had wanted this pardon for a while. I think he came across Obama's desk. I think Sly Stallone may have been behind it. Um, pardons Jack Johnson. Like, we're supposed to say, all right, okay, man, you did something nice for the brothers. Thanks, Trump. You don't hate us. No, fuck that pardon, man. Fuck that pardon. I don't give a shit about that pardon. There's a lot more people that, that could use that pardon than a brother that's been dead for seven years. And the other thing, and here's the point that Harry Edwards, a civil rights activist, made, who, by the way, was behind the Tommy Smith, John Carlos um, protests in 68 Olympics, or at least was talking to them about it. He says that instead of a pardon, the United States should be apologizing to Jack Johnson. How do you pardon somebody for being, for an injustice that was done upon them? And you're going to pardon them like they did something wrong? That's like pardoning a runaway slave as far as I'm concerned. You know? <laughs> yeah, runaway slave, you broke the law. I pardon you, man. It's all right. You can go away. No, you motherfuckers never should have made him run away. That's on you. You need to apologize for that shit. So this whole uh, trying to trick us with these with this pardon, uh, to me, is, is such bullshit. And now the ultimate of it is people leaking that Trump, I guess, has said this. I don't know if he said it directly, that he can pardon himself is one of the things he's talking about now, that he's not afraid of this whole Mueller investigation because he can pardon himself. <sighs> this is what we're up against, you guys. This is what we're up against, this type of thinking. But once again, I will say, you can go fuck your pardon. What America and the world needs from you and what we need from you every day is an apology. All right? Okay. Um, we'll be uh, right back talking with Nell about her great book, Just the Funny Parts. And uh, it's really, really a fun conversation. I talked with her uh, last week. And uh, Nell's an old pal of mine. Um, we worked on a couple of shows together, and she's great. Really, really funny. And by the way, the book is hilarious, guys. You got to read it. So I'll be back with Nels Scovell, Just the Funny Books. Okay, well, welcome back. Um, today's guest, God, this, this woman is so talented, you guys. There's so many things that not only that she does, but she does well, you know, which is quite the compliment. Uh, trailblazer in television, you know, one of the only, you're the second female writer on Late Night with David Letterman, I believe. You right. Know, in that run of only very few. But she's done And the so first many one who wasn't Dave's girlfriend. Yes. yes <laughs> I mean, yes. Meryl's fantastic, yes. so I don't want to make that seem like By a the slag. Way, the story but... of Meryl Marco is a great story, too. It, somebody needs to tell her story, I think, at some point. You yeah. Know. Jason Zinneman's book about Letterman, uh, quotes Meryl a lot, yeah. so you get a little taste of it. But anyway, Nell Scovell, everybody. <laughs> oh. Welcome, Nell. <laughs> oh, it's the, me. <laughs> yes. And her book, Just the Funny Parts. Guys, I know I've had people with books on this, on my podcast, but please, especially if you're like a writer, and especially if you're like Nell and I were just saying, an other, you know, you don't quite fit in there, yeah. please read this book. There's not only great anecdotes, 
There's really great insight along the way as well as great metaphors. There's so many great things, you know, if you're a writer. There's writer candy in here <laughs> you know, <laughs> is what I like to say. But welcome to the show. Oh, thank uh, you. Well, I always say that the book is about the three things that yes. I love most, mm-hmm. which is uh, creativity. Right. Comedy yeah. and equality. Yeah. So if you just like two out of three of those things, yeah. you should read the book. Right. And it, it deals with uh, equality in a lot of different levels, too. I mean, you're, uh, how much awareness did you have? Well, let's talk about your, your beginnings. You okay. Know? Um, how much awareness did you have? I was trying to get this as I was reading as to how other you were and how hard that entry was into what you were trying to do. Did you have that awareness? or Because it's hard for anybody to get, right. get into showbiz, you know. Well, I was naive, and yeah. I, I don't know if you felt this too, but I thought um, I come out of college in the early 80s. Right. And you went I, to Harvard. Yes. Right. And I think it's been solved. Like yeah. all that right, hard right. work of— <laughs> Done. Yeah, yeah, Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug, right. and, and, you know, there were enough— um, trailblazing women at that point that proved you could get the job right. done. So um, there's some stupid country western song which is like, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. Sure. And yeah. it's kind of good that I, I didn't there's know the There's a good arrogance odds. of youth. I'm saying yeah. arrogance in a good way. You yeah. Know, that's helpful. I'm, my first audition when I was still in college was at the Mark Taper Forum for their improvisational theater project. I just did it on a whim. And I had no, um, this is great, I had no picture and resume, right? I go in, and you had to do everything, because it's stage, you know, you had to move, and you had to... Wait, what does that mean, you, you had, had to, to move? Like, you had to show you could move on stage, you had to, because uh, there was dance in it, you had to sing, which I couldn't you sing, danced. of course. No. But, uh, and you had to do a monologue, and in the monologue, I picked up this guy, and I kind of threw him down. It's like this dramatic thing. He said, Larry, that was good. You know you just threw down the producer. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> so here's what I said now. Here's what I said. I could, so they said, uh, okay, well, how can we contact you? For instance, I said, well, I'm going to be in Santa Barbara this weekend. A friend of mine's doing something. So I really don't have a contact number. Why don't you guys just give me your number, and I'll just call you on Monday, <laughs> and you can let me know whether I got or not. I mean, I had no idea what I was saying. I'm telling the producers, I'll call you guys. Don't bother calling me. And so now I go, this is true, I go out of town, and I come back, and I go, oh, yeah, I need to call those people about that thing, you know. And I called, and I said, yeah, Larry, we don't want to, uh, I'm sorry, but we're not going to give you the, the um Thing that we were going to give you this night, we want to give you the equity part, Ooh. one of the leads. And I go, oh, that's great. You know, I go, okay, I'll see you there. You know, I couldn't believe it. But it was all of not caring. Right. And what I call that arrogance, that innocent arrogance of youth, you know. Of right, just, that brashness. of. Uh, yeah. Well, I tell the story about how um, the summer before my senior year mm-hmm. of college, I get a phone call out of the blue from the one of the sports editors at the Boston Globe Mm -hmm. who had read some of my articles in the Crimson and was offering me a job. Right. And that was another one of those, like, of course the Boston Globe would call me and offer me a job. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Right, yeah. (laughs) It's so amazing, you know, to think that. And then you get to Hollywood and say, mm, things are, mm." Oh, well, if you like disappointment, Mm -hmm. Hollywood's a great place (laughs) to land. It de- it delivers it in interesting doses and at interesting times. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, uh, I know, but there is a saying that um, show me someone with a long uh, career in show business, mm-hmm. and I'll show you someone who's had ups and downs. Yeah, and it's really like you got to take that to heart because yeah. it's uh, um, 
you know, it's a wave, not a <laughs> not a line. Right. And was uh, Shandling Show, was that the first sitcom that you went in to meet on? Yeah, right here on this lot. Right, it was. It was at Sunset Gower. Wow. So yeah. I'm having, like, all these kind of flashbacks. And, yeah. Uh, and again, that was just like, oh, I wrote a spec script. Right. It got sent in. Mm-hmm. They called and said they wanted to buy it. And you're just like, well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and and then, but that was a perfect example because they ended up, they ended up not producing that episode. Mm-hmm. They asked me to write another episode. I wrote that one. And then they didn't produce that. Yeah. But they paid me. But it was kind of a perfect first Hollywood story. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, because it just, like, I, I didn't know how to react at the end. Do you do this, too? Because when I was working on my book, my editor kept saying, well, you know, Nell, you need more emotion. How did you feel mm-hmm. when they called? And I realized, I think it's a survival technique. I just yeah. kind of went numb a right. lot of the time. I have that a lot, definitely. Yeah. Like, there's some gaps in my memory. My brother has an amazing memory. But he's, he's like, so emotional, and I realize it's the memory's fault <laughs> because <laughs> yes. you know, cause he remembers all that stuff. But my memory—I have, like, a sociopath memory. It gets rid of all a lot of bad stuff, and I go, how come I can't remember that when that horrible thing happened to us? <laughs> I'm like, oh, because it was a horrible thing. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe—I think it's a survival mechanism that I'm very— Well, I do the comedy at. thing of, yeah. of finding the funny way to tell the yes. horrible story. Yes, me and, too. Right. And do you do this sometimes? Like, Completely. you'll tell a story. And then someone will go, no, that's horrible. Yes. And I'm like, oh, yes. it is? Oh, right. oh, I hadn't realized that. Exactly. Because <laughs> our brain kind of does that automatically. Like it, it's it's a comedy dyslexia, you know, <laughs> where like I have, a, I have a little bit of weird dyslexia. Like Saving Private Ryan always looks like Saving Private Yarn for some reason. <laughs> but, but I do that with comedy all the time. Something will happen and jokes start happening in my head. Yeah. You know? Like people, like people say, I don't know if you have this question. People say, how did you get into comedy? I say, well, actually, I got into showbiz so I could get comedy out of me. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, stuff's just in there. And I, gotta, I mean, if I worked in a bank, I'd still be telling jokes, but nobody right. would like it, you know. Right. Well, that's mm. – one of my least favorite questions is where do you get your ideas? Right. Because I say it's, it's like asking me how do you grow your hair. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> it just kind of happens, yeah. and it comes out of my head, and there yeah. you go. I was very – it was uh, interesting when you talked about working on that Some Others Brothers. Was that, was that a special or was it a series when they relaunched it? So they did a 20th anniversary special in 88, and it got such good ratings that they picked up six episodes Mm -hmm. of that show. Right. Um, And so it was me and a bunch of 50-year-old, you know, uh, Emmy Award-winning comedy writers for, you know, Mason Williams and Tommy. And um, that was a very strange experience. And even stranger now, because now I'm the age that those guys were. Wow, wow. <laughs> I know. Wow, yeah. And and uh, that makes it even creepier that they all hit on me. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. Well, not only hit, but you're very brave when you recount. Yeah. Uh, Do you remember that stupid song, Spiders and Snakes? How did it go? No. No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> oh, come on. I have no. to now. <laughs> oh, no. So the story is that um, the... One of the other writers was a guy named Jim Stafford. He was the head writer, right? Well, he became the head, became writer, the head writer after right. three episodes. Mm-hmm. And he um, was not a fan of having women in the room. Mm-hmm. I, I was the only one. And 
you know, he would do stuff like Tom Smothers, who was a great mentor. Um, mm-hmm. And just to backtrack for one sec, one of the things I tried to do in the book, I don't know if it came out, was to like name check some of these uh, funny people from the past who inspired me. Mm-hmm. So whether it's Martin Mull or right. Albert Brooks or the Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. um, Monty Python, like I so hope someone younger reads this book mm-hmm. and like checks some of those people out. Yeah. Um, Cause did you, I didn't really grow up knowing the Smothers Brothers. Did you? I did. Um, the Smothers Brothers, well, it's funny because I didn't have a sense of what they were doing politically. I just found Tommy Smothers very funny. Yeah. He just made me laugh, you know, but the, the political stuff kind of went by me at the, at the time it was on the air. You know, I learned to appreciate it a little later, you know, and what they were doing. But at the time, I mean, everything he did was just funny to me, you know. Oh, he's a genius. Yeah. And and it's always the flip. So he plays dumb on stage. Yes. And then he's just one of the best comedic minds I've yeah. ever met. And it's the same like, you know, Penn and Teller. Teller's silent yeah. on stage, boy, in real life. He's brilliant. Can't get him to shut up. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, it's, right. it's usually the flip. Mm-hmm. Um, so this guy becomes head writer, Stafford, and he starts pulling stuff like, um, mm-hmm. you know, Tommy says, everyone come in with cold openings on uh, Monday, you mm-hmm. know, uh, over the weekend. And I'll, I come in, my type A, and I've written out, you know, six different cold openings. Sure. yeah. And only right. to be told by the head writer, you know, oh, you, oh, you shouldn't have worried about it now. Me and the boys got together around the pool yesterday, mm-hmm. and we worked it all out. And, you know, that's that moment when you go, wow, if you— aren't included, you can't contribute. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's... So... And it's interesting. Exclusionary language is very clear to the one that's being excluded, you know? Yeah. And that is such clear exclusionary language. You know, you don't belong in this type of thing, you know? And I'm going to remind you as I'm telling you this. Yes. But look, and it's still to this day, you know, the last sitcom I was on... I was the only upper-level female, mm-hmm. and I was a co-EP, and the the other co-EPs and the EP would regularly go out to lunch and ditch me. Yeah. And it was—I was in no man's land because mm-hmm. the younger writers, you know, wanted to go bitch about the, the bosses and didn't right. want, you know, management in there with them. And— um, you know, I, I, I actually got to the point where I, I went to the EP and I said, you know, look, if you guys are just talking fantasy football, that's fine. You don't need to include me. But it seems like you're coming back with story ideas and <laughs> right. casting ideas. Sure. And it makes it harder for me to do my job. Mm-hmm. And um, he told me I was being paranoid. <laughs> Well, so yeah. the exclusionary, like it's still that's their thirty years separate those two stories. Yeah, um, and so I wish. I mean, it's one of the reasons I wrote my book is because I just feel like we haven't come far enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, what's interesting too, your, I mean, your writing is very sensitive in terms of how you even related as a female, you know, in that environment, and just how do you how you should even dress. I remember reading some of that, which is fascinating because guys don't think about that. You know, they're going to work. In fact, in Hollywood, I always get mad 
when, like, if you dress nice and go, where are you going? I said, motherfucker, how about looking nice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to look like a slob all the time. You know, it's a, it's kind of that uh, limousine liberal type of thing, too, you know, where right. I'm a high-paid Hollywood writer, but I'm going to dress like a bum, you know? But as a, as a female writer and the only one in the room, it's fascinating to me to hear your account of that because you were always consciously aware of being judged a certain way, right? Right. Based, based on looks, based on being a female, based on somebody might hit on you if you're dressed a certain way. Are you one of the guys? Right. You know, or are you the girl? You know. Well, mostly I just mm-hmm. didn't want to draw attention to myself, but especially right. attention to me as a female. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't say this in the book, but I, I do think, like, one of the things that helped me was mm-hmm. that um, I wasn't cute enough to be a distraction, but I was cute enough that it, like, looking over at 2 a.m. during a rewrite, someone could say, yeah, I'd do her. That's hilarious. <laughs> you get right that now. right. All right, now. You wore me down. <laughs> Fine. But, you know, I I'll did. I'll objectify you. It's late enough. <laughs> now I want to fuck you. All right, let's go. No, I'm tired. You wore me okay. down. <laughs> if you insist. There's no one else here. Right. That's hilarious. Uh, but yeah, and and um, I think that you know, and then you know, getting older adds another twist to that Absolutely. whole thing, yeah. and becoming a mom adds another twist. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I talk a lot about how I did not want to talk about my kids in the room, and people would ask me mm-hmm. um, if I had kids, and I would say yes, but I'm blanking on their names right now, mm-hmm. um, because I knew if they saw me as maternal, mm-hmm. they wouldn't laugh at my comedy as much. Was that the biggest—what was the biggest transition phase in your career as a writer in terms of dealing with what you saw as hostility towards— you know, what you were bringing in the room. Is it the fact that you're someone with kids? Because it sounds like there's hostility against that. Or is it uh, when you become more senior and now people have to reckon with you as somebody, as a a true peer? Because I noticed that as I moved up the ranks. You know, it's one thing when you're the, you know, you're the representative at that early stage in your career. Everybody's happy. But when you're the one people have to listen to, it's a little different. Oh, completely. Yeah. And those two things kind of lined up mm-hmm. for me, both having kids and, and becoming a showrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was really hard and continues mm-hmm. to be hard. Um, oh, that's interesting. So you had that same oh, experience. Completely. Yeah. Um, no, and it's like we—it's the difference between, well, we'll, we'll take your opinion into consideration mm-hmm. and— you know, oh, we have to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Well, for me, when I started out, <clears throat> there's a lot of parallels in our career. It's interesting, too. But um, when I started out, I had already been a stand-up comedian. So um, my jokes were kind of my defense mechanism. So, at, like, at the end of the day, I always felt like I can be just as funny as any of these motherfuckers in this room. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, that's what I always felt like. Oh, especially so, if you've been in those rooms and you know. <laughs> yes, but I hadn't, yeah. you know. So, like, when I—and my first— 
TV gig, well, my second one, I worked on the Rick D's late night show was my personal. But in Living Color— Oh, my God, that was your Wilton North. No, it was. <laughs> no, but your Wilton North had great writers who wrote in that show. Not as really. Game. Well, there were some. Wasn't Conan well, on Well, Conan the, and Greg were in the room next door Daniels, to me. Greg Daniels, hello, yeah. the office. And, and you didn't uh, have anyone? You must have had some. I don't want to okay. embarrass anybody, right. but uh, it was, they were very nice people. Let me put it like that. Okay. Yeah. But it wasn't like in Living Color, which was like an all-star cast of, of writers and that yeah. type of stuff and performers, you know. But in, in Living Color, you felt like you were going to get fired every day. So, I mean, I had those Jimmy oh. Cagney white heat type headaches all the time, <laughs> like at night, you know, <laughs> writing at three in the morning and that kind of stuff and pitching. It was so exhaustive. But by the time I got on a sitcom, like they said, yeah, we need a story idea. I would have like 10 story yeah. ideas. They're like, calm down, Larry. I'm like, no, motherfucker, <laughs> I'm going to pitch my ass off. That's but right. my defense mechanism was overdoing it, you know, was making sure I had more than enough so people couldn't dismiss me, you know. Did you find you had to do that type of thing or be extra funny or— Oh, completely, you know. and, and extra professional. Mm-hmm. Oh, so to go back to the, the Smothers Brothers, and I, I don't want to tell the story in, like, great detail because it takes a lot of nuance, but this yeah. guy ends up, you know, sexually manipulating me, mm-hmm. and he has—he's he, in a position to determine whether I come back on the show. They got picked up for another— I think, 10 episodes, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I really <laughs> wanted the work. Right. Um, and he ends up the, so sort of manipulating me, and, um, you know, I tell this story, which I wrote before the whole Me Too movement mm-hmm. passed uh, or came. And you were just writing it just to cover your life, and you're just— Reflect on that time, right? Right. Well, mm-hmm. what I wanted to do is show young women. I think there's we have this tendency to look up at people who have been successful and mm-hmm. think, well, nothing bad happened to them, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. they figured, they navigated through these waters and, mm-hmm. you know, through sheer talent or um, connections, they, they did fine. And, you know, sometimes you make it in spite of mm-hmm. <laughs> bad things happening to right. you. So um, so I shared that story, and then, wait, why did, why did I go back to that? Um, well, he, he used oh, sex but that in made a me, yeah. But it made me hyper-professional, mm-hmm. I think, after that. And I realized this line had been crossed. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Gloria Steinem always says that if you could sleep your way to the top, there'd be more women at the top. <laughs> <laughs> if that were true. Right? If that were yeah. true. Right, and, right, right. You know, yeah, sleeping, they let you sleep your way to the middle all the time, right? <laughs> right, or sleep your way out of a job. Right. Um, so I think that was my survival tactic was the same as yours, is mm-hmm. just to work harder than anyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, when I would go to meetings for shows, I'd come in with, you know, a half a dozen story ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's because, in part, those early meetings are kind of like weird first dates, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to, instead of people like, so, do you have pets? You know, to instead mm-hmm. jump in and say, you know, I, I came up with a bunch of story ideas. It'd be great if you could tell me if I'm on the right track or not. Right. And then we, that would focus the discussion on the show. Yeah. It's nice, too, that you, you mention, as well as calling out men who— who 
treat you like he did. But you mentioned people like Bob Benenson, who we both worked with, who's Love. a great guy. Yeah. And he, I, you can feel him looking out for you and being your ally <laughs> in there, which was so nice. You know, I think anybody that's in the business a long time, there are angels that yeah. that are walking among us who kind of help you, kind of look after you, and you sometimes you don't even realize it, right? Right, and yeah. it's one of the fun parts about looking back is, yeah. you know, realizing that, you know, Nina Tassler and Suzanne Daniels and Chris mm-hmm. Augustine, three women, like yeah. after I turned 40, they were my angels. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's also, you know, when you start working on a memoir, you do kind of think, oh, good, now it's, you know, I'll get to settle some scores. And then you start writing and and really, you just want to say nice things about the people who were wow. good to you. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Yeah. And in fact, I, so I made this T-shirt. I've never had the guts to wear it. But it mm-hmm. says, I'm writing a memoir and you're not in it. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Because it does, like, not, like, no, you didn't have enough power over me or mm-hmm. impact on my life to, for me to mention you. Did you ever have a sense now? Because I love how you frame things too. You know, the, with the old joke, "Who's Nelscavell?" You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it get me Nelscavell? She's hot. Get me a Nelscavell type. Who's Nelscavell? Is that how the yeah. joke goes? Right, right, right. And I love that device that you use. But so in that middle, when you're becoming, get me Nelscavell. She's hot at that point yeah. of your career because that's a very interesting part of anyone's career. You almost feel a little like. Um, Oh, invulnerable, you know. Yeah, like, you do. Like you can do anything almost, right? Um, what was that like for you? Because that's a interesting transition for you to have that and then feeling like, what can I act? How much power do I actually have? Right? It seems like you you were kind of lost a little bit after that. Part. Yeah. Is that is that fair to say, or like after the post Sabrina? Post Sabrina, yeah. definitely. Right. And did you come up against a wall? Do you think in the I business? Did. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little better? Or? Sure. I mean, uh-huh. it's and and maybe you can jump in too because we worked together after that, right? Yes. And I did leave the show thinking I would get some huge development deal because right. people who hadn't created a hit show were getting them, right? And those deals did not materialize, right? And that was the beginning of. Learning that um, what we were talking about earlier, that, you know, success and likability are positively correlated for white men (laughs) and negatively correlated for women. Right. And um, that was the beginning of the sort of murmurs about, you know, Nell is difficult. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, Sabrina came in on budget, on time. Right. You know, I worked so hard to be polite to people on the crew and in the cast. And it wasn't coming from, you know, the writer's room. It was just that general sense um, Mm -hmm. that you have to fight against. But what's interesting to me is, like, what's wrong with being difficult when you have to get something (laughs) done? And, I mean, if— if you're driving, if you're the one at the helm of the Titanic and there's icebergs, I want that person to be difficult, you know, and navigate yeah. around that iceberg, you know. Um, it's yeah, Mitch Hurwitz has that great line yeah. about um, running a show is like piloting an airplane while people throw rocks at your head. <laughs> yes, and yes. you just want to say, hey, if I go down, we all go down. <laughs> but as a female showrunner, and I got this as a black showrunner too, I mean, I was fired from the Bernie Mac show after we won every 
award that you could possibly win, but it wasn't good enough because, you know, when you're— How? Oh, that's crazy. No, I, it, it's ridiculous. You know? Oh, that and, makes me so sad. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know if you knew that. So, no, I didn't. But I, I mean, But I had the same experience as you after doing the PJs. Uh, a show I co-created with, with Chris, with right. Steve Tompkins. Actually. Oh, with Steve Tompkins. And afterwards, like Steve got like a three-year overall deal, you know, tons of money, whatever. Everybody that I met would say, "Well, we'd like it if Larry wrote something by himself." You know, oh, it's like yeah. so the white guy gets the benefit of the doubt. You know, yep. The, I always said the benefit of the doubt is more racist than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. It's the one benefit white people don't mind getting. Like, let's know. call it the benefit of the bias. <laughs> yes, exactly. From it's now true. on. And I love your observation, too, where you say uh, white guys get hired for the potential, whereas yeah. uh, women get hired for their experience. Right. Like you have to have experience. Which when yeah. you're trying to get like that first job at yeah. a late night variety show, right. I, you— you can only get hired on potential. Yeah. So most people, like who worked at Letterman, uh, Paul Sims got hired off of Spy magazine. Right. I had worked at Spy. Um, yes. But then I had to go work at Walton North and Newhart and The Simpsons before they would hire me at Letterman. Yeah. So it's just, and so the constant proving yourself gets really exhausting. Yeah. And uh, when did you realize that, okay, the business isn't quite set up for <laughs> for yeah. what I have to offer. I'm just going to do other things. When did that hit your mind? Well, I always did other things. So mm-hmm. I come up through magazines. Yeah, because you came up through magazines, right? And right, right. I always kept one, you know, toe in that water mm-hmm. because it always did seem like TV could vanish. Mm-hmm. And, TV and, having a job in television. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I could always, I always felt like I can go back to that world. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, the real shift is 2009. David Letterman gets on the, goes on the air mm-hmm. and says, um, talks about this blackmail scheme and admits, I have had sex with women who work for me. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, this moment when, um, at the same time, I learned that he had zero female writers on his staff, mm-hmm. and Jay Leno had zero female writers on his staff. And that was like a switch, you know, got flicked. Yeah. That was like, I need to talk about this. Yeah. A lot of that, a lot of people don't realize how pervasive that has been in the business. And it's been a daily show got criticized a lot. I remember. Back even when I was on it, I think I was the only black person in the building for a while when I first went there, you know. Oh, a letterman, 33 years on the air. Oh, there's never been a black writer. Never a single writer of color. Yeah. I always say black first, and then it's like, okay. all right, people can say of color. Well, Let's but you just might be think honest. like some Asian guy went to Harvard. And, Whatever, you know. <laughs> we'll get saying, hired. Yeah. Let's let the brothers in first. <laughs> no, but that like literally, you cannot right. do worse. And, right. And so why, you know? I always said why, if I hadn't created the PJs, I never would have been hired on it. On the Daily Show. On the PJs. On the PJs. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh my god. <laughs> it's true, you know. Yeah. For a lot of those shows, the barrier to entry is huge, you know. Like, you have to keep proving yourself at certain levels, you know. So do you ever feel like, because sometimes I, like, not that I have this number, but, like, I want to call a President Obama and say, why are uh-huh. you going on Letterman's show? Uh-huh. Jay-Z, why are you going and talking to him? That guy is not a friend of your community. 
Well, it wasn't just Letterman. I mean, Carson was the same way. Carson never had any black writers on his show. Uh, Leno had a couple. My yeah. my brother Mark worked on Jay Show, you know, for a long time. But I don't know if Conan did. I have no idea. Well, now he does, um, <laughs> which is good. Yeah, I don't know if he did back in the day. Fallon did. Uh, Fallon had a had a lot uh, on his show, but that's more current. Um, I don't know if I don't Comer know if does now. Yeah, yeah, he does just, now. Yeah, I don't know if they did in the day. Yeah, for the show, but it, you know. I always say there's a racist expiration date for every That's right. every institution in America. I like when people try to point one out to me. Well, look, um, I busted myself for, you know, Sabrina didn't have yeah. um, a writer of color, and that was a mistake. And uh, what I, you know, I was ahead of the curve mm-hmm. on gender, but, you know, on the curve for intersectionality. Yeah. And now I get it, and I think— what I was trying to do was model the behavior of saying, not making excuses, not yeah. defending what I did, but saying, okay, let's let's move forward and yeah. be better. Well, what's interesting in television, I found, um, there was not only a chauvinism, which you face, certainly, but there was also a racial chauvinism, which I faced, you know. And yeah. sometimes it, ma- it would manifest itself in, like, white writers could always work on black shows, but it would be so hard for a black writer to get a job on a white show. Right. As if they knew more about our culture than we knew about theirs, which is wrong, because we're steeped in their culture. That's they right. They are not steeped in ours. <laughs> you know. Okay, but here's another right. thing. A lot of female writers could work on black shows, yeah. but not on white shows. Yeah, which is, I don't understand that at all, yeah. Except it, it was yeah. great for, it was a way for, you know, someone like Becky Hartman yeah. to break so, in. She was my roomie. She's the best. Yeah, on, uh, in Living Color. Um, and, but that's... You know, that's the ghettoization. Can yeah. we use that word? You can use <laughs> can anything I use that you word? want. No, you can say it. There's no apology for language. I'm black on the air. I called the president my nigga. Come on now. <laughs> that was so great. <laughs> we have kind of a—God, there's so many parallels. Like, you wrote jokes for Obama or helped uh, Favreau on them write jokes, right? Yeah. During the—how many correspondence In fact, I think I pitched the mic drop at the end of that one. Oh, you're that kidding one. me. Yeah. You, you did that one, too? Yeah. You guys crushed me in that one. He was so funny. <laughs> yeah. I was like, girl, stop <laughs> so funny. Did you enjoy doing that type of thing? Oh, it was. Um, look, I'm from Newton, Massachusetts, yeah. which is arguably the most liberal city in the most liberal <laughs> yes. state. Right, right. Writing for him was like such a highlight of uh-huh. my life. And uh, and he's amazing. He's got like Carson's timing. He's, yeah, his, his timing got better. When he started off, he was just OK. But man, when he nailed it, like yeah. he would nail the pause and the smile is what it was. Pause. Smile, yeah. meaning like I know you're laughing at that, and yeah, it is funny, isn't it? That that smile kind of made people laugh even more, you know. Yeah, although one of, I, I so I wrote this joke for um, the the dinner for the Catholic charity, the Al Smith dinner. Oh, which is by the way one of the so funny. The Al Smith dinner is yeah. one of the best uh, dinners for political humor. You know? Oh, I know, because it's kind of, everyone sort of um, has the gloves on. Yes. And so you kind of have to sneak them in. So I wrote a joke for when Obama was running against Mitt Romney. Mm -hmm. And it says, um, uh, like, uh, Mitt and I, people focus on the differences, but we actually have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, we both have unusual names. Actually, Mitt is his middle name. I wish I could use my middle name. Uh-huh. And it was just this, like, sly thing. And he actually made this sort of sad face right. at the end. Like, 
Like he really so was funny. sad. And um, but here's the only downside of that joke. I think Sean Hannity tweeted like uh, the middle name joke was good, and I realized I'd given him a moment of pleasure. <laughs> And that hurt. Well, because those assholes, they always used it as a disqualifier, you know. Like there was something, like they always said, and tonight Barack Hussein Obama, they would always say Hussein, you know. <laughs> Which when you think about it, that it's pretty badass that Obama got. It is. Got elected with that name. It, it's probably the most badass thing about first black president. Get <laughs> I'm not only first black president, motherfuckers. My name is Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> Hussein, now, what are you going to do with that? You were born in Kenya. Fuck you. Hussein <laughs> is the president. <laughs> That's what I felt. It's like, man. But maybe history would have been different if his middle name had been like Todd. Like yeah. maybe that's where all the Muslim stuff came from. And mm-hmm. and it's um, – but, uh, but no, he knew how to like ride that laugh and uh-huh. – um, you know, there's a joke for 2011, the infamous year yes. where he Seth said— Seth Meyers one, right? Um, yeah, that, mm-hmm. you know, Michelle Obama and uh, Michelle and I make a great team mm-hmm. at the Easter egg roll. Um, I hand the kids little bags of candy, and then she'll just snatch them out of their hands. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> and then he repeated, snatch them. Snatch. <laughs> like, he just loves <laughs> saying that word. Um, by the way, I believe that was the last mm-hmm. time a joke about— the first lady was ever made because you see her on screen and he makes a joke and she just shakes her head and says no. <laughs> I always felt like I love the first lady. I always felt like I, didn't, I never her. knew what her sense of humor was. I didn't know if she was a scold or like the the comedy enemy, you know, or I couldn't tell. Like, and I used, I remember when he was first running, like I used to hate when she said, oh, look. People treating him like a god. He's he stinks just like anybody. I'm like, no, don't say those things. No, Michelle, no. But she was she was very funny at kind of like uh, putting the rug out from under him and that type of thing. She loved doing that type of thing. It seemed like. Uh, well, you know, so here's the pilot I want to write. Maybe you'll write it with me. That's her. It's because I think. Barack Obama was a classic sitcom character. He was the leader of the free world who okay. lived with his mother-in-law. That's true. She did. Yeah. yeah a lot and of people fact, didn't know that. Yeah. I, I wrote a joke and they didn't do it, but it, it was like, um, you know, uh, it, people um, are worried about my approval rating. I, I live with three women. I'm surprised I have any approval rating at all. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> and I think it's funny, like that idea of you're a god during the day right. and then you come back up to the residence. Oh. It's just you got nothing. your daughters, your mother-in-law, your right. wife. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so, yeah, you're a leader of the free world. It's not free not in here. Not up here. Yeah, it's not right. free here. <laughs> what was? Do you have any? Uh, do you have any particularly just real favorite times in your career when you when you wrote this? And go, man, boy, that was really a great time. Yeah. Well, Murphy Brown. I was on that show for a year, mm-hmm. and it was the sixth season. It was the year right after she had the baby. Oh, with the Dan Quells stuff and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, Diane English had just left. It was being run by Corby Siamis, who is this mm-hmm. unknown genius. Um, she stays very low under the radar. She would hate that I'm talking about her. Mm-hmm. And um, Gary Donzig and Steve Peterman were the other showrunners, mm-hmm. and it was a 60-40 split in gender. Sorry, no no people of color, so that sucked. But mm-hmm. um, 
at that time, still, it was— I thought that you keep being sorry, Larry. Sorry. I know. Sorry, Larry. No, I know all about uh, it. Early mm-hmm. 90s, it's still, like, to have that gender, for me not to be the only woman, to yeah. not have to represent all women and be shot down. Oh, did you have that when you would, fight, like, say, you know, guys, that's not really how— that works in black culture, and they would go, "No, it does. It does." That's uh-huh. the. <laughs> well, luckily, <laughs> luckily, I didn't have to run into that. You know, like when I was uh, working on, let's say, black shows, they were run by by black people, so that was good. Like in Living yeah. Color, I mean, I still think Keenan Ivory Wayne's to this day. You know, I mean, he, I mean, I got to see a show that was wildly popular in the culture. That's right. Run by a black man who nobody considered less than. You know, people were, that show won an Emmy. You know, it was regarded as high concept comedy as well as as lowbrow. It had that nice mix, that it was smart and that it was funny. It wasn't just put in the category, well, that's just black people being crazy, you know. Yeah. It was, so I got to, to see somebody do our culture smart and work under that, you know. So it was always, I was never in that situation where somebody else was was what I call controlling the narrative, you know. I always tried to be in that position where we were controlling the narrative, you know, that sort of thing. So I was lucky in that Do you feel like there was this step backwards, you know, in the 2000s? Because, so 1990, I go to the Emmys with Letterman, and the, of the five best comedies nominated— Three and a half are created by women. Mm-hmm. And they were all in the top ten. Right. You had Murphy Brown. You had Designing Women. Designing women Golden yeah, Girls. Right. Wonder Years was co-created by Carol Black. And mm-hmm. then Cheers. Murphy Brown wins that year. Right. And I'm, like, thinking we solved it. Like, yes. women can do it. And <laughs> right. I'm sure, like, when you watched Keenan, you went, yeah. look. Fresh Prince was on at that time. Cosby Show. Well, no, we know. But that was the top of television. Oh, can I tell you a weird Cosby yes, story? Yes, please. Can you? Yes. And I haven't forgotten about you, motherfucker. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so what? It, it was pretty recently, like five years ago. NBC had a deal with yes, him. I remember. To um, I remember some friends of mine were meeting with him at that time. So yeah, I just met with Cosby about doing a show. I'm like, really? That's weird. So yeah. I get a call mm-hmm. from his PR. Best buddy, right hand guy, and he says to me, um, "Are you? Would you be interested in meeting with Dr. Cosby?" Oh God! And I, you know, I needed work, and so I was like, um, "Sure, yeah, of course, I'd meet with him. He's a legend." Mm-hmm. And the guy says, he kind of like growls at the end, "Oh, he'll love you." <laughs> and honestly, I what? like my antenna just went straight up, and I went, "Well, that's inappropriate." And we ended up canceling the meeting, but it was like even as cl- recently as five years ago, they were still pulling that shit. That's amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were making a, a bigger point about how it changed in the early two thousands. I think compared so. To I think the Bush yeah. years were were bad for women and mm-hmm. bad for. Do you blame it on on the political environment? Yeah, I think we the, the, mm-hmm. I blame it on <laughs> Bill Clinton's penis. And I wish ah. I still to this day mm-hmm. wish he had stepped down, let Al Gore take over that last year, mm-hmm. prove he could be president. Maybe we would have gotten another term. But I think Bush ushered in, Bush and Cheney ushered in a total backlash. Mm-hmm. 
um, and gave people permission to like, oh, yeah, we solved that problem. Now we don't have to listen to women and black people anymore. Mm. Yeah, I'm a little more cynical about Hollywood, I think, than oh, are you? <laughs> to blame it on politics. Well, I know Hollywood, the color they care about is green, you know, and it's so easy to dismiss us. Um, well, you know. But see, I, th- I, women have made money for I them. I know, but and- once, once it's— once you go a cycle and that's not happening, it's so easy for oh, yeah. them to fall back on on the stuff that they just do. You know, like there was what was it? Margaret Cho had a yeah. show about a Korean family. It didn't go. Sorry, Koreans don't work. Can't yeah. do that anymore. But it was the hit. They would have tried about five more until that cycle was over, and then they would have been done. Yeah. Know? So unfortunately, I feel like we always have to be proving that. You know. Um, well, I've written you know a bunch of movies. I've directed a couple for cable. I'd love to do more, and. I remember meeting with a studio executive Mm because I was very frustrated um, that I couldn't get any of of my movies made. And she, and it was a female, said to me, no, you just have to write more like Nancy Myers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What? That's not who I am. That's not the stories I want to tell. I mean, I like a nice kitchen as much as anyone, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not going to center a movie around it. right. So they do, like, it became this very small target that you mm-hmm. had to hit. And if you veered away from that target that they knew would work, you know, you couldn't get traction. Do you think that's better now? Because I know there's a lot of, um, we're having a Wakanda moment, <laughs> like you say, like, for <laughs> the, a lot it? of black women are yeah. out there now. Shonda Rhimes broke down a lot of doors. Issa Rae, Lena, yeah. You know, and— so we might be in a moment that has some permanence, I hope, you know. Um, I remember in the press I talked about black shows going away, and I said, uh, like, once Fox got football, they had, like, this ethnic cleansing and got rid of all their black <laughs> oh shows. <laughs> I was actually in the press, you know. <laughs> oh but, it was, but it seemed that way to me, like like the black yeah. shows helped, like, launch the network, you know, and then they didn't need them anymore, and it was gone. Or then they'd have it on one night, which I called nigget night. I'm like, how come— <laughs> Why is it on just one night? You know, like you, we can't put black people around other white shows. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, uh, it's crazy. But they they segregate TV all the time like that. You know, but it may be changing now because there's so many options. Yeah. Maybe I I still worry that it's um, you know even like broad cities going away. Mm-hmm. Um, another period which is hilarious. Yeah, they're so uh, funny. So funny. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I heard they might not come back. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you go, well, what's replacing those? Right. And are they going to be, you know, are we going to be like back to dudes again? I hope not. You know, with yeah. all the trailblazers, we're definitely in some trailblazing moments right now in the last five years, I think. So hopefully that stuff s- sticks around. Do you want, do you think you want to, do you have plans to do more in television at this point? Are you moving on to other things? Oh, I always oh. have ideas. Yeah. And I, I, do you want to run a show again and do that kind of yeah. stuff, or, or do you want? I mean, to just... I wrote a pilot this year for CBS that yeah. didn't go, and I wrote one for you know Disney Channel last year, mm-hmm. and actually the same year. And um, it's I've got so many years of training uh-huh. um, that it would make me sad if I were done, but. Um, but it's hard. Of, I'm old. But no, I would say you're wise, and you're, you can pull comedy from many different sources now. So, if you're, if is there any particular subject matter that you're more interested in now that you feel like you weren't really interested in before, like, 
Like, for instance, yeah. when you have kids, then you want to write about kids. Or if you worked like you've worked around politics, you know, some people want to write about that. Or Washington. Is there any area of the world or in your life that you feel you want to investigate more now? Or? Well, I think wealth inequality fascinates uh, oh, me. And the past two pilots I did, one was called Trophy Sister. Uh-huh. And it's about— um, a blue-collar sister, she's she's a teacher, and her husband, who's a school nurse, her sister, who married this billionaire and moved to Europe, is um, getting divorced mm-hmm. and comes and lives with them in New Jersey. And it was actually a metaphor for the 1% just mooching off <laughs> the backs of right. the of the blue-collar or workers. So— um, that was kind of fun. And then the one I did for Disney, I was back in my old um, magic uh, wheelhouse, and it was called The Wand Percent. And yes. it was about a nice. family of witches where they use their magic um, to gain power over other people. And you're not right. supposed to do that. But it's a perfect metaphor for money. I like it. W- one last thing. I know you have to go. And thank you so much, Nell. Oh, this for, is going so fast. I know. It is going oh. fast. But I, I have to talk about our, our little intersection in the magic world since you brought it up. Because you mentioned your your buddy uh, Penn Jillette in the book. And by the way, I love those stories of how you guys hung out in New York. And <laughs> that was happy. That yeah. sounds like such a fun thing to do. And, of course, those guys are interesting guys and that kind of so stuff. So smart. Yeah. And, in fact, I remember this is all for you magic nerds out there. Sorry. Uh, so Nell and I were on the show. What was it called? Uh, Teen Angel. Teen right? Angel. That's what it was, that went out of my head. We talked about it earlier. Teen it was back Angel. When, when, yes. when dead dead teenagers was were funny. Yeah. Like yes. you couldn't do that show I anymore. Know, that's so true. Like a the school show was shooting about a dead and they, teenager. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Wow. And it had uh, Marsha Brady on it. You know, I, right? Yes, I. You know, I'm just. I can't remember her name. Maureen McCormick. Maureen McCormick. Who was very nice. You know? Yeah. But uh, I remember you brought in a buddy of yours, John Carney, at the time. You know, and uh, he did some magic for us. I'm like, this is this is so cool that we. He's had like that the in. best close up, or one of the best close up magicians. Crazy. Yeah, he's crazy good. He's yeah. at the Magic Castle a lot. He's there this week. Actually. Oh, he's in the palace. Yeah. So you're a mag hag too. Yeah, I'm a member. Of the, I just yeah. hosted the Magic Castle Awards, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's fun. So we haven't had that full discussion. Of, okay, Nell and I are going to have the magic discussion off the air. I just wanted to bring it up now. We just need a full catch-up is the problem here. But for everybody out there, just the funny parts is is not only funny, it's insightful, it's moving. Uh, you'll learn just so much about kind of what it's like to be a writer in Hollywood, just even at that level, it's very interesting. Oh, and the the way you archived materials is very Well, is that was the journalist in yes, me. Yes, that's amazing. Yeah, I kept my, I held on to my primary sources. Yeah. Did you just throw all the, your old scripts away? I think a lot away? of stuff is gone, but <laughs> I think there's stuff in the garage. You know, I have some boxes of some old things. I don't think I have marked up scripts. I love that. Yeah. Where there were, like, notes on it and that kind of stuff, yeah. So when are we? So the Obamas just made this deal at Netflix. Are Crazy. we going to go pitch our sitcom? Gonna, let's do it <laughs> with the mother-in-law. Let's, let's call it just. Uh, <laughs> Everybody loves Barack. <laughs> or I'm moving in, my niggas. <laughs> I think they'll go for that. Nell <laughs> uh, Scovell, just the funny parts. There's more than the funny parts of this book, but even if you read just the funny parts, it's a good read. Thanks, Nell. Oh, thank you, Larry. 